maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared. So when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organized chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout. And despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com squared, lowercase. So you can start Start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's Notion.com slash squared. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. It would benefit the planet, it would certainly be more pleasant for animals, but a quick look at any modern day supermarket will tell you that the world is still pretty hooked on eating meat. In today's debate, we invite two well-informed speakers to debate, we should all go vegan. Speaking for the motion is George Mombio, columnist, environmental campaigner, and author of Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet. And against the motion is Patrick Holden, founder and chief executive of the Sustainable Food Trust. Our host is Alice Thompson, columnist and interviewer at The Times. This is the first part of a two-part discussion. If you want to listen in full, you can get part two of this debate right now by becoming an Intelligence Squared member. Do head to intelligencesquared.com or you can hit subscribe in the Apple Podcasts app. Part two will follow in the next episode. Let's join our host, Alice Thompson, now with more. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared online debate. Uh, we should all go vegan. Um, and I can say that I have been both vegan and carnivore, I would say almost, and I've also been vegetarian. I've tried the whole lot. I'm pescatarian, um, but I am very open to debate um, and to my mind being changed. So first of all, I'm going to ask you to make your first vote so we can see whether your mind's going to be changed. Um, you need to vote for or against the motion. 
should we all go vegan? And if you're unsure, you can vote undecided. This is going to take a couple of minutes probably for the results to come through. So before we start, I'm going to explain briefly how this session is going to work. Um, in a moment, our two debaters are going to make their opening speeches. Then I'm going to chair some debate between the two of them. And then I'm going to take your questions. So anything you think of as you go along, uh, you need to scribble down and then you can send it across. And at 6.55, the speakers are going to end the debate with short closing statements. And then I'm going to ask you all to vote again. And we're going to see whether anyone has changed their mind at all. So if you can start sending your questions to the speakers as soon as you uh, want, uh, then we will see what the first vote is. And I haven't actually seen it yet. I haven't been told what it is. So we may have to start before we know what the answer is. Unless anyone else has... George, have you been given the... Results before me. <laughs> I was sent them in the post yesterday. <laughs> so I think then we should get going and I will, if the results come through, I will announce them. Um, but I think we should first, I'm going to give a brief introduction to George. He doesn't really need very much introduction. He's a Guardian columnist. He's the best-selling author whose latest book is Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet, which is a fantastic read and very eloquent as well as persuasive. He's a committed vegan, um, although I think occasionally you have cracked. And you can watch his documentary, it's Apocalypse Cow, How Meat Killed the Planet, which is on channels four, my four. And I think actually you may have eaten a stag in that, um, <coughs> although it was shot entirely for environmental reasons. Not a whole one, I hasten to add. But a whole one would be quite a lot, actually, wouldn't it? Um, but I hope it wasn't the whole. I left the antlers. Uh, yeah, well, the antlers don't... You can actually have the antlers on toast, can't you? Can you? Yes, isn't that what Lady Glendower did? Well, I came here to learn stuff and it's already begun. We could try it out one time on Exmoor Dartmoor. Um, George is going to speak for seven minutes, so would you like to start now? Thanks, Alice. Well, yeah, the, the problem we have with this debate is that the great majority of people, I think it's fair to say, are in deep denial about where their animal products come from. And we all uh, have a picture of livestock farming um, as being the picture that was really planted in our minds by those children's books that we were all exposed to when we were pre-literate. You know, the, the, the classic children's book is a livestock farm with one rosy cheek farmer, one cow, one pig, one horse, one, one cat, one chicken. They all talk to each other. They all live in harmony. No indication of why they might be there or where they might be going. And the reality could not be further from the truth, as I found when I worked on an intensive pig farm as a teenager. And every day I was thinking, first of all, this isn't what they told me farming was about. And secondly, why is this legal? You know, if we treated our cats and dogs like we treat pigs and chickens, for example, we would be sent to prison. But the great majority of our animal products come from intensive factory farms like that. Um, in countries like the UK, between about 85 and 90% of our animal products come from those places. And they are devastating for animal welfare, but also environmentally devastating. Um, and that's because they need to be fed. They can't feed themselves in those sheds. And so the food is imported, often from the other side of the world, where it can be have devastating consequences in its production. An area the size of Spain in Brazil has been destroyed to produce soil. Um, to largely to feed the world's farm animals. Um, and, and then the nutrients pass through those animals. There's far too much dung for the land to absorb. And so when farmers spread it,
put it on the land. They claim they're fertilizing it. In fact, they're dumping the dung. It washes off into the rivers and kills the rivers. And we're seeing this with the River Wye, many other rivers around the Welsh borders. Um, dairy farms are doing similarly in um, Patrick's part of the world, in Pembrokeshire, and, and in my part of the world, in Devon as well, with just horrendous consequences. And so people say, well, the answer then, obviously, is to go for extensive livestock farming, free-range livestock farming, and to eat pasture-fed meat. And this has become the great call of foodies and celebrity chefs and even some environmentalists. That's the answer, because, you know, we like that picture. We like the picture of cattle and sheep grazing in the fields. It looks harmonious. It chimes with thousands of years of pastoral poetry and children's stories um, and, you know, BBC programmes, because if the BBC were any keener on sheep, it would be illegal. Um, but the reality of that is in some ways even worse than the reality of factory farming because of the vast amount of a resource that it uses that we neglect massively in environmental discussions. It's possibly the most important of all metrics, and yet we scarcely discuss it. It should be right up there with greenhouse gases, synthetic chemicals, all the rest of it. What is it? Land use. The amount of land we use is an absolutely critical environmental issue because every hectare we use for our own extractive purposes is a hectare which can't be used to support wild ecosystems such as forests and wetlands and savannas and natural grasslands not, not enclosed and used for pasture. And, and, and those wild ecosystems are what the great majority of the world's species depend on. And in fact, earth systems as a whole depend on the survival of wild ecosystems. Now, there's one area in which we are tuned into land use, and that when, that's when it comes to urban sprawl. And we all dislike urban sprawl, and so we should. It's bad for cities, it's bad for the countryside. But the entire urban area of the planet occupies 1% of its land surface. All the homes, all the businesses, all the infrastructure, 1%. Much of the rest of the planet is desert, is ice caps, um, is, is mountain ranges, um, just 15% is protected areas. But by far and away, the greatest land use is farming. And, um, and farming occupies roughly 38% of the land surface of the planet. And when I say farming, you're probably thinking of growing crops, but that occupies just 12% of the land surface of the planet. And of that, almost half those crops are being grown to feed to those animals in the factory farms. So only six or 7% of the planet's surface is growing crops to feed humans directly. So what about the 26% of land, which makes up that 38%? All that is producing pasture-fed animals. It's basically pasture-fed meat production. And this carries an enormous ecological opportunity cost and an enormous carbon opportunity cost. In other words, the cost of what you're not using that land for, which is supporting wild ecosystems. And despite the outrageous climate denial claims of the livestock industry, uh, wild ecosystems are almost invariably much richer in carbon um, and, and lower in greenhouse gas emissions um, than any of the pastures being used to produce our beef or our lamb. Now, there was a study in the United States which said, what if we were to do 
what all the foodies and celebrity chefs are doing and switch away from eating corn-fed beef, which is enough of a problem, and switch towards pasture-fed beef. They found that you would have to increase the area used to produce cattle in the United States by 270%. You'd have to cut down all the forests, drain all the wetlands, water all the deserts, degazette the national parks, demolish the cities, and you would still be importing a lot of your beef from Brazil. There's simply not enough planet to do it. We could all eat pasture-fed beef and, and lamb if we had several planets and no space for wild ecosystems on any of them. But as we don't, and as we desperately need to conserve and restore wild ecosystems if we're going to get through this century, we just can't arrogate that right to ourselves. Um, and, and the fact is that, you know, if we were to make that switch to pasture-fed beef, only the rich would eat it. You know, there's this idea, well, we can all eat less and better. But, that, you know, does that ever work with any luxury product? You know, do, do, do the world's poor eat beluga caviar once a year? Um, or bluefin tuna sushi once a year? No, because that's not how luxury products are distributed. If we produced far less meat, which we ought to, only the very rich would eat it. There is no good way of providing animal products, which everyone can meet, eat without inflicting enormous damage to earth systems. And so we, we, we live in this state of delusion, really, that, that we can somehow have a thriving planet and at the same time um, eat exactly what we want to eat. But actually our diets are by far and away the biggest impact of all the things we do. And by far the biggest component of that impact is eating livestock products. In fact, if we, if we stopped eating livestock products, according to a paper in Science, uh, we would save 76% of the agricultural land area that we currently use. And if we did that, then that would enable a great global rewilding. We could restore ecosystems on a massive scale. We could bring back the rainforest. We could bring back the wetlands. We could bring back the wild savannas and the wild grasslands at sea. We could bring back the, the, the kelp forest, the coral reefs, the ocean, um, uh, the ocean sea floor, which uh, is absolutely essential to protecting life and protecting carbon. And all that would be possible if we switched away from an animal-based diet to a plant-based diet. And I don't think this is a luxury. In fact, it's quite hard to see how we're going to avoid the sixth great extinction and, for that matter, the collapse of Earth systems unless we switch away from eating animals. There are two fundamental things that we have to do to prevent the environmental disaster that scientists predict if we don't change course. One is to leave fossil fuels in the ground. The other is to stop eating animals. Thank you. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation 
of George Orwell's classic. 1984 was pretty cool. And I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Fantastic. Now, I have to say the results are in. So you've got quite an uphill battle, I feel, George, but it was very uh, well argued. So we'll see <laughs> all the changes. <laughs> but 8% agree and 48% disagree, um, with 44% undecided. So I think we're now over to Patrick, um, who may have an easier job. But on the other hand, if you lose some voters, um, it may be awkward. So uh, we will... Uh, talk uh, now to you. And you are the founder and chief executive of the Sustainable Food Trust and patron of the UK Biodynamic Association. And um, I think really since I first became interested in farming, you have been a major player on the scene and very involved. I think the first time I met you was bread making, actually. So you've been involved in the whole process for for generations, really. Um, Your work centres on the importance of transforming our food and farming systems to address climate change and to reverse the biodiversity loss and improve public health. Uh, You're also an organic farmer in Wales, uh, and you've got a herd of 80 Ayrshire cows. um, So George may not be thrilled by that. Um, But your milk goes to produce cheese, and um, you are feeding um, people not with a vegan diet but with a much more healthy diet that they might get if they just popped down to McDonald's. Um, So you now have seven minutes to speak. Well thank you very much. Um, Thank you George and I just would like to start by acknowledging your great work George. I think you are an incredible environmentalist and campaigner. I've admired you for many years and I think your book Regenerasis Uh, the first half of which I fully agree with, is a brilliant critique of what is wrong uh, with industrial farming, including livestock. So there is so much we share. And for me, it's very disappointing uh, that there's such a polarisation of our views over the role of livestock in sustainable farming systems, because I agree with you that The livestock systems that predominate all over the world at the moment are definitely part of the problem. But rather than trade statistics with you, which we could do, and no doubt we will do uh, when I've had my six minutes and and there's a bit of a, you know, back and forward, 
Um, I want to talk about my own practical experience. And because I think that uh, one of the reasons why I think you doubt the capacity uh, of farming to transport in a way which will uh, have livestock really at the centre of the sustainable food systems which replace the ones that we've got at the moment is because you're not a practitioner. I am a practitioner. Um, I'm within a month of celebrating our 50th anniversary here on this 300-acre mainly livestock farm. You know that we've grown vegetables along the road and we were just talking about it. We used to be a carrot producer for supermarkets. We had to stop because the system um, got too centralised. And I've just been out today ridging up my potatoes. So I'm definitely a a vegetable grower. But the main use of the land on this farm uh, is for producing uh, livestock. We have now a 90-cow Ayrshire herd and followers. And uh, we produce cheese, as Alice just said. And um, what is really interesting about our farm, after 50 years of not using any nitrogen fertiliser and farming in harmony with nature, is the impacts. The first of which I want to focus on a little bit, which is carbon. We just had a carbon audit, and it looks as though, if you believe the data, that we are actually carbon negative. In other words, the soil building of in the permanent pasture and the rotations, because we do grow some oats and peas to feed our cows, um, looks as if it not only offsets the methane emission of the cows, but also the energy that we use on the farm. So we are net carbon negative. Now, obviously, this is just one farm. And I I also want to speak about the nature impacts. Uh, You said that if we took more land out of uh, production to, um, if we we carried on, um, if we went to my system at scale, uh, it would have devastating impacts because we'd have to have more land in production. Well, the, if you farm in harmony with nature, you have fantastic biodiversity outcomes. Our farm is alive with birds, small mammals, insects, amphibians, all because we're not farming in a hostile way and the, li- the wildlife can coexist with the system. We also employ around seven full-time equivalent labour units on the farm. And... So if you take it together, um, we are producing a lot of food. We're producing enough cheese to feed 3,000 people. Uh, The milk we sell uh, could feed another 2,500. And the meat, which comes either from the dairy cows at the end of their lives or the male calves, can feed another 500. Now, you might say this is just one farm. And what did you say? You said, we're living in a state of delusion. Well, I, I plead guilty. I am in the state of delusion. After 50 years, I'm convinced that my farming system could go to scale. And if you don't believe me, we did a report which we published uh, just recently called Feeding Britain from the Ground Up, where we modelled a nationwide transition of farming to sustainable farming systems operating within planetary boundaries, the sort of farming I'm doing here. And we looked at the impact on total food output. And the fascinating conclusions are that we could maintain and maybe even slightly increase our national level of food security in our staple foods if we switched to farming systems like the one we are using here. And if we scale that globally, yes, we could feed the world, but only if we ate differently. Here's some areas where we agree. We'd give up all industrial livestock farming. Uh, No more cheap chicken, no more horrible pork from industrial pork units or mega dairies. You mentioned there are mega dairies near this farm in Keridigian. But if we 
if we gave up eating meat, it would be a problem because the farms that need to re- the farming systems that need to replace the ones we've got at the moment would rely on a rotation, 50% of which at any one time would be in fertility building, and that would normally be clover and grass. And to maximise the food output from uh, that system, and actually I would say to revitalise the soil, we need livestock, grazing livestock, yes, mainly grass-fed, not exclusively grass-fed in a dairy system, but certainly with beef and lamb production, more or less 100% grass-fed. And if we did that, we'd actually have quite a lot of meat to eat, far more than most people think. What we have to give up is the cheap chicken that everybody's become used to. So in summary, I'm not sure how, how I'm doing for time, but in summary, if that system was scaled globally, every country would have a different diet because obviously the geography, soils and climate of different countries varies. But there's no reason why we couldn't maintain our livestock production except that we change what we eat and take that to scale. So I think that you need to come here, George. You remember, you may remember you were here in 2007 at the launch of Transition Town Lampeter, but you didn't have a chance to look around. But uh, in celebration of our 50th anniversary, come and look for yourself, because I think at this time it's important that environmentalists work together, sync our differences and share our stories. And my story is that it is possible to produce livestock working in harmony with nature. My wife, uh, Becky, is out there milking the cows at the moment. She sings to them when, when, when she's milking. They are loved. Uh, they are treated with compassion throughout their whole lives. And the cheese and the milk that we produce and the meat is a reflection of our compassion for the animals. There's no reason why we can't take that to scale. Thank you, George. Now, if there are any more questions, they're coming in now, but we, we can ha- take quite a few more. Um, I'm going to start. I'm very interested. Patrick, today you're on the Today programme, but and you weren't invited to number 10, but you really should have been, shouldn't you, by Rishi Sunak for the farming conference today. Do you think, uh, listening to what came out of that, that the government has any interest at all in your kind of farming and being more sustainable? Or do you think in the end we're more worried about trade wars and about trying to be profitable? I think, well, I think trade wars are important because we need to have a way of measuring the sustainable impact of all the different foods that we're trading in, because trade will continue because we are structurally unable to be self-sufficient. But I don't think that the sort of issues that I was talking about on the Today programme this morning will have featured in the conversation when we when I listened to Judith Batchelor and Minette Batters uh, later on in the programme, I was thoroughly depressed and it was rather annoying that the presenters didn't bring up the points that I'd made because it seems to me that we need an agricultural transition just like we've had or are having an energy transition and it will have many of the same features because at the moment if you farm in a sustainable way as we do, you make less money and are less profitable than if you're farming in an extractive way when I'm sure George and I would agree with that. So what we need is a mechanism like the feed-in tariffs to enable the transition to truly sustainable farming systems, which do involve would involve rotations uh, to build fertility. And I think that's the key point that we need to drill down on, because I don't think, Tolly um, is a great hero in uh, George's book, Regenesis. I've known Tolly for 40 years. He's a vegan grower. He said to me very recently, quote, You know I agree with you about the role of livestock in extensive farming systems. Definitely you can produce vegetables um, in a vegan system. 
Tolly does it and my friend Peter Seger down the road does it. But if you want to farm at scale, you need a crop rotation and to turn that crop rotation into food that we can eat, uh, we need grazing livestock. So George, what is wrong with um, Patrick's assessment that if you had lots of small farms that were carbon negative and um, that were produced at scale, um, why we couldn't accept that and have that? And wouldn't that actually be a better way mm. of producing a sustainable environment, sustainable farming? Well, I don't want to dis um, what Patrick does at all. You know, he's 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 totally sincere and, you know, he's a lovely guy and um, he treats his cows very well and all the rest of it. But I just don't buy it. If he is indeed a carbon negative livestock farm, he's the first one on earth because there's been endless studies published in peer-reviewed journals looking at the claims of being carbon negative and none of them so far have withstood the scientific process. In fact, there was um, a a meta-study published um, at the Oxford Martin School, part of Oxford University, called Grazed and Confused, um, looked at 300 papers and it found no instance anywhere on earth of livestock farmers even washing their own faces in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, let alone drawing down extra carbon emissions. And there's a fantastic amount, and not in, in any way saying that this is what Patrick's doing, because but you know, there is a huge amount of jiggery pokery involved in, in carbon calculations of what's going on under the soil. And it's just far too easy to make things look right when they really aren't. As for the idea of, well, we could produce more pasture-fed meat, I mean, already 51% of the UK is is, is producing pasture-fed meat, and yet it produces scarcely any. I did calculations for for, for sheep, for, for mutton and lamb, and estimated that 4 million hectares of the uplands are being used to produce mutton and lamb in this country, and yet it produces just 1% of our diet. Now, 4 million hectares is the same amount of, as all the grain growing in, in 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 the UK, which produces a very substantial part of our diet. It's a really profligate form of land use. It's agricultural sprawl is what we're looking at. And this has an enormous opportunity cost. So if you look at the hills of Britain, they are almost entirely bare. There's scarcely any trees above 200 metres. Parts of inner London have more trees per hectare than those hills have, including in our national parks. And people think that's natural. It's not. The altitudinal tree line in the UK is, is well over a thousand metres ev- everywhere except perhaps the top of the Cairngorms and one or two other very rocky parts of the highlands. Almost everywhere else there would be trees. In the western half of Britain it would be dominated by temperate rainforests. The reason there are no trees is primarily because sheep and cattle selectively browse out tree seedlings. They're extremely nutritious. They're the things they like to eat more than anything else. And so unless you bring your numbers down to ridiculously low levels, one sheep per 20 hectares, no trees are going to grow. And that is the most basic component of ecological regeneration, trees returning to a formerly forested landscape. If you haven't got trees returning, it's not regeneration. It's not regenerative. Um, And so you get all these terms banded around. This is regenerative farming. You know, it's just like the word sustainable. It gets just tacked on to anything you happen to be doing. Regenerative ranching, formerly known as ranching. Um, It's just just a word which people use. And when you look at the actual wildlife, which uh, farms even wonderful, beautiful picture book farms like Patrick's support, it's a very thin selection 
of the wildlife that could otherwise be living there, starting with the large predators. You know, we don't have wolves and lynx in this country because livestock farmers insist that they don't get reintroduced, having wiped them out because they um, um, uh, compete with us for, for food, which is because they might eat some of the livestock. And everywhere you go on earth, with only one or two very small exceptions, um, large predators are driven um, to extinction or to the brink of extinction at the behest of livestock farmers. You don't have the trees growing on these farms. Uh, there was a, another meta-analysis looking at 100 papers um, uh, and found out that uh, for all major ecological groups, guilds of, of, of wildlife, um, every single one suffers from having livestock on the land except for detritivores, animals which eat dung. All the other groups suffer. They all improve when you take the livestock off the land. So this idea that you can square the circle, you know, we can have our beautiful picture of the cattle and the sheep grazing on the land, and you can have thriving ecosystems. It exists in picture books. It exists in, in our image of farming. But actually what the numbers show is something very different. And, and you know, Patrick, he paints a beautiful picture, but the problem is we are dealing in pictures when we desperately need to be dealing in numbers. We need to become food numerate. And just as with climate issues, you know, we've slowly become climate numerate. We've begun to do the maths. We've begun to understand how much fossil fuels we need to leave in the ground if we're to avoid a certain amount of global heating. The same has to happen with food. Otherwise, we're cooked. Someone has asked, they've said, actually, this is, I mean, you definitely reply in a minute, but they've asked whether, when you scale up your system, um, would people be able to eat the same amount of meat? Are you expecting to, them to have the same sort of diet? Or if you had your farms rolled out across the countryside, would they be eating a predominantly vegetable-based diet with some of your cheese and uh, sustainable uh, meat? The, I mean, the answer is all in our report, Feeding Britain from the Ground Up. I would recommend people should download it from our website. Um, and there's a lot of data in there, and it's all very carefully researched. And if I'm unable to trade statistics with George now, uh, I've got colleagues, Robert Barber, Richard Young, back at base camp, who will do that because we care as much as George does about getting the data right. So George raised a lot of issues. Um, Evidence of soil carbon outcomes, that's important, very important. The French minister, Stéphane Le Foll, at the COP21, set a target of four per thousand, catch per meal. Uh, it was a challenge for all the countries of the world to use farming systems which built their soil carbon by 0.4% per year. Now, I'm sure George doubts uh, the veracity of our recent audit. And that's fair enough, George. But uh, there's a growing body of evidence that shows that if you adopt holistic grazing practices, as we have been doing here for the last five years, you get a continuous soil carbon gain. And the most surprising thing about our recent audit was, because we've been keeping soil carbon records for now over 10 years, is that some of the permanent pastures which have been now rotationally grazed with a mob grazing system, are showing the highest soil carbon gain. Now, obviously, one swallow doesn't make a summer, and that's a, so it's a very important thing to test. But there is a, a website called Carbon Cowboys, run by a man called Peter Bick, who's a researcher at the University of Arizona, State, Arizona State University, who's been doing some really amazing work on comparing 
holistic grazing farms with their neighbours, and it looks as though those farms could achieve the four per thousand target as set by at the COP21. I think we may be getting close to it here. So it's really important that we uh, we do more research in this area. There's a growing body of research suggesting that you can build soil carbon really quite quickly. And if we're right, then that's huge. And I'm sure, George, you would agree that if this evidence can be presented to you and you thought it was valid, you would have to change your opinion about livestock. Well, that's always the case with, with everything. If if I see the evidence, I will change my opinion. You know, I'm entirely evidence-led on this issue, which is why I turned from being an advocate of meat-eating to a vegan. Well, that's, on, that, can I just say, George, carbon. that's fantastic, mm. because mm. I, I think this is the beginning of a conversation between us where we really mm. do need to look hard at mm. the data. And by the way, I, you'll know a chap called Pete Smith, who's a grassland scientist at the University of Aberdeen. And he's more with you and, than with me about the potential of grassland to build soil carbon. But I said to him when I recently saw him, you know, absence of evidence isn't necessarily evidence of absence. Mm. And the sure. truth is the grassland science community have not mm. been doing proper studies on this. But yeah. we don't have an absence of evidence on this. Um, in fact, um, it's, it's really very clear. You're quite right that some forms of ranching will sequester more carbon than other forms of ranching, but not by comparison to the natural ecosystems that would have been there before. That, you know, you can offset, let me finish this. So, so you can say, okay, in this field where there are X number of cows grazed in a particular way, there's more carbon than in this field where there are Y number of cows grazed in a different way. Yeah, that's totally uh, uh, fine. And and we can we can agree on that. But what, what the, the Climate Change Committee, the government statutory Climate Change Committee shows, is that if you go from pasture to woodland, which is what, what much of the land we're talking about would have supported, you increase your carbon by 25 tonnes per hectare. That's just your below ground carbon, let alone the carbon in the trees above ground. And this is massively greater than any of the sort of details of this this grazing system versus that grazing system. I don't think that's true, so, actually, so, George. I just and, want to and, say I don't think that's true. What, you don't think that what the CCC is saying is true? No, I don't. And by the way, right. the, Lord Deben, who's the chair mm. of the Climate Change Committee, mm -hmm. privately agrees with me. Yeah, you see, you're giving all this private anecdote. You know, someone said to me this, someone said, you know, the, the published figures, Patrick, are, 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 you know, that they had, you have to meet certain scientific standards. If we're to, George, to I'm just going to move on. This issue I think out. That we've also got on your side, you really need to... Um, Explain what you what you want instead. So someone's put, what are the true costs of producing healthy vegan-based products? And the new scientist this week suggested that lab-grown meat could be twenty five times worse for the climate than yeah. beef. So, sure. so I mean, so I'm, that's I'm not my issue. Lab -grown meat. Yeah, so yeah. My problem was that I read your book and and I thought the first half was extraordinary. I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. Brilliant. Brilliant. And then when you started getting on to um, talking about you know meat grown in factories and taking pills, I sort of lost the plot because I felt that wasn't <laughs> not really... talking about taking pills. Well, honestly, it's the sense that it was, didn't feel natural to me anymore. It didn't feel <laughs> like you, you, you confused it with some 1930s sci-fi. <laughs> well, it felt like that very much when you wrote it, and I think when you talk about it, we're not going to be. Able 
able to eat the lynx. We're not going to want to eat the beavers. What what are you expecting people to eat? Are they just going to be eating crops? But then also we will have then grown the crops on land. So that's not all going to be woodland, is it? No. So, well, for, for I mean, if you were to do what I broadly do, which is to eat a, a largely plant-based diet, you would immediately greatly reduce your land footprint, your um, greenhouse gas footprint, uh, your water footprint, just about everything which is involved in in, in producing our, our our food, you reduce those footprints. But and and that's you know just where we are using plants as our substitutes. Now plants aren't great substitutes for animal products, you know. And and if you're not going to eat substitute animal products, and I'm not remotely interested in veggie sausages or or veggie burgers. I don't I don't really like them. I don't think they're very good. You know, I prefer just to eat. Um, nice plant-based meals. There's lots of brilliant Indian meals and Thai meals and loads of wonderful things you can make entirely with plants, which aren't pretending to be animal products. But I realise that I'm in the minority here. You know, most people are going to want to eat something very much like animal products. Now, for 12,000 years, we've been farming multicellular organisms, plants and animals, and we pretty well push them to the absolute limits of their efficiency. I mean, I think you can say with a chicken, you've pushed it beyond the limits. They can't even support their own weight anymore, many of the chickens that, that people eat. But we've scarcely begun to explore the farming of unicellular organisms. And I think this is going to be a massive shift in human diet um, and indeed in human civilization itself. It's going to be the most important um, environmental technology ever developed. Because if we do switch to, to farming microbes, but I'm instead of farming microbes, we can greatly... I beg your pardon? I said, I'm farming microbes. They live in the yeah, room, no, no, no. You, you, the you, room you, of you our cows. You introduce microbes in, into your cheese. That's, well, of course, of course, that's right. But but that's a highly inefficient way of doing it. Whereas if we're, if we, if we're farming... <laughs> let, me, let me just finish what I'm saying and then you can come on to your lovely cows. But, you know, so... so the, uh, growing microbes, uh, in a, uh, you know, on uh, for instance, if you use um, hydrogen or methanol as, as your feedstock, you can reduce the land area by thousands of times. You can reduce your water use massively, your fertilizer use massively. According to my calculations, you could produce all the world's protein, half a sec, all the world's protein in an area the size of Greater London. Not that I'm suggesting that, 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 that we grow it there, but that would enable a massive rewilding and those and and by producing uh, unicellular organisms you can produce far better substitutes for animal products than you can with plants but also i think it'll trigger a whole new cuisine because just as the first people to domesticate a wild cow weren't thinking about camembert there's a huge range of potential products that we can start making from microbes. Now, I know this all sounds very sci-fi, but it's not about pills. I mean, I the first I was the first person outside the lab to eat a pancake made entirely from bacteria. It was delicious. It tasted just like a pancake. It's but 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 we've got to start thinking big. And at the moment, we're in a situation with livestock where we're saying to people, oh, just stop eating it, but we're not giving you any good substitutes. It's a bit like saying stop burning fossil fuels, but we don't have solar panels or, or windmills. So what are you going to do? Just just get cold. So so it, we now have the potential. And I think we should stop feeling afraid of it. We should stop being so neophobic. We should grasp the enormous scope for greatly reducing the environmental impacts of our diets. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. 
This episode was produced by Hannah Kay and edited by Tom Hall. If you want to hear more from Alice, George and Patrick on why the world should or shouldn't go vegan, you can get part two of this debate right now by becoming an Intelligence Squared member by heading to the website intelligencesquared.com or clicking try free or subscribe in your Apple Podcasts app. Do sign up to the Intelligence Squared newsletter and make sure you're up to date with all our upcoming events featuring some of the world's great minds. 